Please turn with me now to Romans chapter 6. We will read this evening verses 12 through 14. Hear again the word of the Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let us pray. Almighty God, we seek you. We seek, Lord, you by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the communication of your grace in your word. We ask, O Father, that you would quicken our hearts, that we might hear and believe, and that believing we would be saved. We ask, O God, for your help. We ask for your help in the preaching of your word and your help in the hearing of it. May your name be magnified in us tonight, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in chapter 6, verse 1, the question was asked whether one ought to continue in sin in order that grace might increase. And the answer, of course, was that you cannot continue in sin because you are dead to sin and alive to God. Just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so also you have been raised, not to continue in sin, but rather to walk in newness of life. You are dead, buried, and raised with Jesus Christ. Moreover, since sin has no claim, no dominion over Jesus Christ, sin has no claim over you, no dominion over you. Jesus died to sin and lives to God. You, being in Jesus, have died to sin and live to God. At the end of chapter 6, Verse 11 says this, You must reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our passage tonight begins in verse 12 with the word therefore, pointing back to all of that we covered in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, but especially that there in verse 11. We were told that we must reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And here in verses 12 through 14, the apostle instructs us how we do that. We are going to see two prohibitions, a command, and a promise that show us just how we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. First of all, the first prohibition right here in verse 12, you must stop letting sin reign over you. You must stop. Verse 12 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. I want you to understand this is, some, this is a present tense prohibition. You remember a prohibition is like a command, but negative. Don't do this. Well, in this case, because of the present tense, 
It's literally saying sin must no longer reign. But because the prohibition is addressed to you, we translate it this way. You must not let sin reign. You must stop it. Now, a question at this point might be, if I am dead to sin and I have been freed from its dominion, why does God command me to not let sin reign over me? And the answer, you are dead to sin, but sin is not dead to you. Sin has been deposed, it has been taken off of the throne of you as it were, but not yet entirely destroyed. Sin has no dominion over you, but it will attempt to reign over you at every opportunity. You may think of sin as a tyrant, a ruler, a cruel taskmaster to whom you had once sold yourself. You had an indentured servitude to sin. And you had a contract with sin. That contract was you would serve sin for as long as you lived. Along came Jesus Christ, and in him you died to sin, so you are freed from that contract. But sin is like a stalker, an obsessed ex-boyfriend who won't let it go. He is not wanting to lose a servant, a subject. He does not get the message, and so he will come back again and again trying to persuade you to once again be under his authority. It's a little bit like the picture of Israel leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and Pharaoh pursuing after them. It was foolhardy. He was defeated, but he was not wanting to let his slaves go. So sin once owned you and all of your labors, but Jesus Christ has freed you from that. In him, as we said, you died to sin, and sin is no longer your master. In fact, Jesus Christ is your Lord and master. But this unrelenting pursuit of sin seeking to have you, and if you will permit him, sin will enforce its wicked will upon you. Therefore, you must stop letting sin reign over you. There's a sense in which sin in rebellion to God is trying to set itself up as your ruler. And you must fight against that rebellion. Perhaps another way to think of it is at one time you were a servant or a slave in sin's household. Why? Because you sold yourself to him. Because you obeyed him. Because you in Adam were guilty. But then Jesus Christ came and freed you from sin. Now you live in the house in which Jesus Christ is the master. You are his servant. You are to obey him. And yet sin skulks around outside the house and peeks in the windows and sticks his hand under the door and does everything he can to convince you to submit to his rule. But the apostle says you must stop letting sin reign over you. He speaks of the mortal body. You must stop letting sin reign in your mortal body. The mortal body, of course, refers to you in your present state. 
You are mortal. You are earthly. You are subject to all of the things of being a creature on a fallen earth. The mortal has not yet put on immortality. So when he speaks of a mortal body, though, we mustn't think that the apostle is only speaking of our physical body. Do you see that while our soul is not made up of material, it too is fixed to the earth so long as it is united with our body. In other words, the apostle is not here saying something like this. Don't let sin reign over your physical body. Right? Does, does sin only harass and seek to control your physical body? Or does sin also work on the inside of you, in your heart and mind and soul? Well, we know it is the latter. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 to 230 said this. I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his body. No, in his heart. And he continues, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now what I want you to see here is how Jesus is connecting the whole person. The soul, which he signifies by the heart and the body with its parts. The right eye, the right hand, the members, the whole body. And then that which is cast into hell. You all know, of course, that it is not only bodies which are cast into hell, but rather body and soul will be cast into hell. But Jesus is connecting all of these together because you are, beloved, body and soul. And you cannot sin in body without sinning in soul. Neither can you sin in soul without sinning in body. All of this I say to you just to say this, that when the apostle speaks of your mortal body, he does not mean to speak of sin only in your physical flesh and blood body as opposed to your body and your soul. Now we continue in verse 12 and we find the result. What happens if we let sin reign? What, what is sin seeking to do? And it says that you should obey it in its lusts. This is a strange clause. In fact, the word obey refers back to sin. Okay? So don't let sin reign in order that you should obey sin. But then the lusts refer to that which comes from the body. Here again is another indication that it is not speaking merely of the physical body. Because strictly speaking, the body itself doesn't have desires, does it? And that's what a lust is. A lust is a desire that's qualified by being contrary to God's will. All right, A lust is a desire that is contrary to God's will. So when we let sin reign, we obey sin, and sin takes advantage of the lusts of our body. The sense of it is this way. Letting sin reign, 
leads to obedience to sin, which then works in and through our desires and even our own bodies. You see the depth of the slavery to sin here, in that sin uses you, your whole self, for its purposes. As I mentioned, lusts are sinful desires, and those sinful desires come not from being a creature per se, but rather come from being a fallen creature. Remember, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Therefore, we were subject to the guilt and the corruption of sin. Now, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven for those sins, and the bondage and the corruption to sin is broken. But there is remaining corruption. There are effects from having lived in the house of sin. There is, in today's terminology, trauma. You have some effects that remain in you. And those effects from sin will remain until you meet the Lord in glory. But sin has a desire to rule over you. And it does so by making you obey it. And then awakening and encouraging and inflaming those lusts. It would be better for those lusts to remain asleep, out of touch, away from us. But sin wants to get in there and awaken them and cause you to exercise them. And so you see here the importance of not letting sin reign. It it is incongruous for the Christian who has a Lord Jesus Christ to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ and obey in his place sin. And just think of it in these terms, beloved. Jesus Christ, his desire is to give you life. His desire is to give you life. And he gave his life in order that you may have life. Sin's desire is to bring you to death, to use you up, to take advantage of you, and to bring you to death. The wages of sin is what? Death. That is the end of sin, beloved. Therefore, you must not permit sin to reign over you. You have to stop it. There is a second prohibition here in the beginning of verse 13. You must stop presenting yourself to sin. Paul says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Members are your parts, various parts of your body or parts of you. But you know that you cannot separate the parts of you from you. Right? If, if a young man is kicking his brother, his mother say, might say, stop kicking your brother. And the young man might say, I'm not kicking my brother. My foot is kicking my brother. Well, you know, and this young man knows, that his foot is a part of him. And that's exactly what the apostle is saying is, don't let any part of you serve sin. Stop presenting it. So the members here then refers to all of your parts, your powers, your faculty. This is your mind, your will, your emotions, your body. Everything that you possess, everything that makes you a whole. Notice that this prohibition is once again in the present tense. In other words, 
the apostle assumes it is safe to tell us, right now, you are presenting yourself to sin. You need to stop it. You need to stop it. The word presenting here is often used to refer to an offering. Something that is dedicated. For instance, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to Jerusalem, to the temple, they brought him to present him to the Lord. You see, they were taking their son and dedicating him to God, saying, we are setting this one apart for God's use. This is often used uh, of a pagan sacrifice to their gods. They present an offering to their gods. Sometimes it is used of a bride being presented to her husband. And Paul is saying, don't present yourself to sin. Don't offer yourself to it. Don't dedicate. Don't devote yourself. Don't dull yourself up and try to get sin's eye. You see, sin will use you, your body, your mind, your soul, whatever you have, and use you to wage war against God. And you must recognize that when you offer yourself or any part of yourself to sin, you are offering it, says Paul, as an instrument of unrighteousness. This word instrument can be a a tool or a weapon. Sometimes it's translated as a weapon. You, You become a weapon in the hands of God's enemy. You become a tool, an implement, something that sin uses to bring about death and destruction, something that it uses to obscure the goodness and glory of God. My late grandfather used to be a sheriff's deputy. And I remember as a child him telling me um, about some of his exploits as a sheriff's deputy. And he told me the worst kinds of calls for them to go on were domestic disturbances. And he described several scenarios in which um, suppose you have this um, abusive, tyrannical husband and he's beating up his wife. And she calls the police. And the police come to rescue her. And they take the man and are going to remove him from the house. And then suddenly, the woman who had called the police and asked them to remove this man begins attacking the police, saying that they are taking away her husband. And this is a little bit what it is like when we present ourselves to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Right? God has freed us from sin. He is rescuing us from our abuser. And then we turn and gnash our teeth at him and become an instrument against him while he is merely trying to give us life, trying to rescue us. So, beloved, let us stop presenting ourselves to sin. Now, the true prohibitions are followed by a command. You see the command at the second half of verse 13. But... Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Notice the contrast. This is the exact opposite. Don't do this to sin. Do this to God. Take yourself, take your members, take your faculties, present them to God. Offer yourself to God, your whole self. 
Now Paul says that you should present yourself as being alive here in verse 13. This does not mean as if you were alive, right? But rather, because you are alive to God, present yourself to him in that way. This means instead of offering your body or your mind or your emotions to sin so that it can use those as tools in its war against righteousness, you offer all of those things to God as tools to be used for righteousness. In the uh, movie, the, the Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's a scene in, in which um, Sam and, uh, Frodo and Sam are, are going to go on the quest to, to recover the ring, right? And Sam is the best hobbit by far, everyone agrees. But they're going on the quest, and Aragorn says, If by my life or death I can protect you, I will. You have my sword. And then Legolas says, and you have my bow. And then Gimli says, and you have my axe. You see, what they are doing is presenting themselves to be used as instruments in that quest. And this is what Paul is telling us to do. To say to God, you have me. You have my eyes. You have my lips. You have my hands. You have me. Use me as an instrument of righteousness. You must present yourself to God. This command then is followed by a promise. In verse 14 we read, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 14 gives us a reason, and then it enforces those prohibitions and commands in verses 12 through 13. And this is not a command. It, we could you know, think that he's saying sin shall not have dominion over you is a command to us, but this is actually a promise. God is saying sin shall not have dominion over you. I am not going to let it. You see, God has declared himself to be your Lord and Master, and he has rescued you from sin. And how did he do that? By the blood of his Son. And he is not going to allow you to be ruled by sin. He won't allow it. He will not let sin have you. You see, just as God calls you to present yourself to him, God is also pledging himself to you. He is promising you he will not let sin be victorious over you, Christian. The assurance of victory in this is a great encouragement in our fight against sin, isn't it? To know that whatever our faltering is now, whatever, whatever failures, whatever weakness, whatever fear, whatever doubt, God himself is pledged that sin will not be our master. So this is the promise. And then it goes on to explain in the rest of verse 14. You are not under law, but grace. Some have misunderstood this verse to mean that the Christian is no longer subject to the law of God. 
But I want you to just think through this for just a moment, and you will see that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Sometimes Christians will say that. Well, I, don't come at me with these rules, and don't tell me about commandments, because I'm not under law. I'm under grace. But just think it through for a moment. Notice that it is being under grace that explains that sin will not have dominion over us. It is grace itself that makes sin defeated. So it cannot be that being under grace would mean we are free to sin. Moreover, do you remember back when the apostle said of the Old Testament saints that back in chapter 5, he said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He was speaking, of course, of believers under the time of the law. Where grace increased, it's the same grace that's being referenced here, was not saying that those people had no obligation to obey God. Instead, what you have to understand is that the law refers here not to the law as a moral standard, not to the commandments of God, but to what the Bible calls the curse of the law. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me in Galatians 5, 16 through 22. I'll, I'll read it and we'll just look at a couple of things here, but it will illustrate what I'm speaking of. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The principal thing I want you to notice here is that there's a parallel between flesh and spirit and law and grace. These refer to man as fallen, as, as in bondage to sin, and man as redeemed. To be in the flesh, in the, first, in the contrast in Galatians, means to be the natural man. The man who's guilty in Adam. The man who's in bondage to sin. To be in the Spirit means to be redeemed, means to have the Holy Spirit, means to be forgiven from your sins. So too in Romans, to be under law means to be under the covenant of works and its curse, to be unable to obey God, to be under bondage to sin. 
Meanwhile, to be under grace means to be forgiven your sins, to have the seed of God in you, to be free from sin, to have the ability, beloved, the ability to obey God. And so this refers to what we call the covenant of works and the curse of the law. Now, this has several benefits for us. So being under grace, so consider this, the the whole mass of humanity from from the time of Genesis chapter 3 was under the curse of the law, fallen in Adam. But those who believe in Jesus Christ are under grace and redeemed. And this has a number of benefits for us. As I said, you are in fact enabled to obey and please God. You've been given grace. Listen to John Kelvin. By the word grace, we are to understand both parts of redemption. The remission of sins by which God imputes righteousness to us and the sanctification of the Spirit by whom he forms us anew unto good works. So this word grace here is speaking of our being forgiven for, by our, for our sins and the implantation of God's Spirit in us to enable us to work and do what God commands. There's another benefit to this, and that is because you are under the covenant of grace and not the covenant of works, your works now are no longer subject to the strict do and live, don't do and die like Adam in the garden. Do you remember, Adam, how many sins did Adam need to commit before he was subject to death? Just one. Right? He was required to have perfect personal obedience all the time. And according to that covenant, if he broke just one law once, he was guilty and he was doomed. But now you, in the covenant of grace, having been forgiven for your sins and having been redeemed from the curse of the law... You are not only justified by God, but you are now adopted as his children. And listen to what Kelvin says about this. John Kelvin, he says, Works are not now tested by the strict rule of law, but that God, remitting their impurity, does kindly and mercifully accept them. Do you understand what he is saying there? That Christians... Those living in the covenant of grace can do good works that are pleasing to God. Why? Because strictly speaking, they are perfect and good? No. Because God remits, he forgives their impurity and does kindly and mercifully to accept them. Do you see this? You now being God's children, the works that you do are pleasing to God because God has already agreed to forgive your sins He's already agreed that he's going to treat your works kindly and mercifully, and he's going to apply to your meager obedience the merits of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can do what is pleasing to God and walk uprightly before him. Our Westminster Confession speaks of it this way. In Westminster Confession, chapter 16, section 6, first of all, 
The section prior says even our best efforts are filled with many imperfections. We never, ever give God all that he requires. We never do it with perfect motives. We never do it with our whole heart. We never do it in the right time. We we have lots of faults. But chapter 16, verse 6 says this, notwithstanding, in other words, all of that being true, it doesn't change the truth that's about to follow. The persons of believers being accepted through Christ Their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. But that he, that is God, looking upon them in his son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. Although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Beloved, being under grace means not only the forgiveness of your sins and the ability to say no to sin and yes to God, but being under grace also means that God is pleased to accept your imperfect works that you do by faith. And he is pleased to crown those with the merits of Jesus Christ and then reward you for those works that he works in you. So this should be a tremendous encouragement to us then to know that sin is not going to reign over us. God has saw to it that sin will not reign over us. Sin will attempt to rule over us, but we must see that attempt for what it is. It is sin's rebellion against God. And we must resist the urge, the temptation to join sin in that rebellion against God. Remembering God who saved us. We must also not present our parts to sin, but rather present them to God. Let God use you for righteousness. And again, remember the two parties. Remember what it is that sin wants with you and will do with you. Remember also, though, what what God has done for you and what he wants for you. Does God want harm for you? God wants life for you. Not only that, But remember that God has already graciously blessed you. He has already given you full forgiveness of your sins. He has already adopted you as his children. He has put his spirit in you. He promises to treat your meager efforts according to the merits of Jesus Christ. He promises not to judge them strictly by the covenant of works, but by grace. And he has assured you of the victory. You are not under law, but under grace. Therefore, sin shall not have dominion over you. Let us pray. Almighty God, were we to look at ourselves, were we to look at our track record, it might be supposed that sin reigns over us. Oh God, let that not be the case. Separate us, O God, from our sins. Put to death in us those desires that are contrary to your will. Be merciful to us, O God. We we need more grace. We ask that you, O Lord, who give to all without reproach, that you would give to us more grace. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.